Hi, I'm Anthemus. I'm the CEO of Zumper, and you're listening to the App Guy Podcast. The App Guy Podcast. Straight from your host, Paul, the App Guy. Welcome to another episode of the App Guy Podcast. I'm your host. Uh, it's Paul Kemp. Uh, I love this show. Uh, if you love this show, then do go and uh, leave a review. I love those five-star reviews. Please do go and uh, head to your favorite podcasting app or iTunes and uh, help the show by leaving a review. Uh, so this is the show where I interview lots of different people from all around the world. And uh, what I do is uh, I deconstruct their journey and see if it can help us out in our own app journeys. Today, to help us with this, I've got, I've got actually one of the most interesting uh, emails I've had in a long time. Uh, I've, I've got a founder who came to me through uh, my good friend, Steve P. Young, uh, who also does a podcast. And he, um, it's Rachel Cook, and she's the founder of Seeds, and uh, she's going to talk about Seeds. It's something that will help inspire your non-payers within the app to spend their money, which is pretty helpful. Now, get this. She's got a journey that we're going to talk through, which is going from a stock trader to a film director to actually coming up with this idea with um, uh, having spent a night in a Kenyan jail. And I've been to Kenya, so I'm fascinated by this. So, Rachel, welcome to the App Guy podcast. Thank you, Paul. Let's go straight into that really juicy story then. Let's skip over a few things and, and then take you back to that night where you're in this Kenyan jail. I'm so fascinated by this. How on earth did you come up with your idea from such a, a like a remote place? Uh, well, I was actually, I was in Kenya because I was already working on the very earliest versions of Seeds. Um, seeds build social good into apps, and then we funnel capital that we source in apps into microloans, so a sustainable form of social good um, channeled to people in different parts of the world. And Kenya was the first place we were working. So yeah, I was there and I, I was out to dinner with a friend, another American, and um, we just decided that because there are sort of, you may have noticed this, Paul, there are signs, at least at that time, all over Nairobi on telephone poles that say like, get your fortune told, call this number. And we thought that would be fun to do. And uh, it kind of led us on this wild goose chase that brought us to Kawangwari, um, which was one of the, I think it might even be the second largest slum in, in Nairobi. Um, yeah, and it turned out that we were in a spot where there had apparently been a terrorist attack the week before. Um, and the story is kind of long and winding, but we were in the car We'd found a fortune teller. Um, he was in the car as well. He'd started to tell our fortunes. And these plainclothes guys with AK-47s came around this corner um, and didn't identify themselves or anything and just like yelled at us and made us get out of the car. Um, and then they told the driver to leave and they got back in the car and they just drove us away. So we figured we were being kidnapped. We'd, you know, that was... That was what it seemed like was going on. And in a way, it was, that was exactly what was going on. Um, but it eventually turned out that these guys were cops. Um, and in the car, they drove us to like a local police station. And they kept yelling at us, like, what were you doing there? It's very dangerous there and so forth. And once we got back to the police station, um, they took our phones and wouldn't allow us to call anyone to let them know, you know where we were. They wouldn't let us call the, the embassy or anything. Yeah, so we hadn't done anything remotely illegal, um, and they just held us overnight. They told us that they wanted us to wait there so that the boss of the jail, I guess, would um, 
come in the next day and and talk to us and make some decision about what to do with us. And then, yeah, what ultimately I think ended up being the truth was that they wanted to hold on to us so they could extort some cash. Um, yeah. So, so we were That's there. Crazy. It was crazy. Uh, th- this is the most fascinating like uh, in- introduction I think I've ever had. Where you know this is like y- you coming up with the idea. <laughs> now it, it's sort of my. Uh, now I'm actually following the story with f- fascination because I picked uh, Kenya to go on my honeymoon, and it was just after the, there was a terrorist attack uh, shooting down a plane, and it was probably the week after. It was. Uh, the, probably the safest time to go because there was huge security everywhere. But I remember turning uh, like the, down the wrong alleyway in Nairobi and just feeling like uh, you're in a different world. Uh, and it felt immediately like scary and uh, that you're in the wrong neighborhood and you had to get out. And I remember like uh, saying to my wife that it was just like, we've, we've got to get out of here. And uh, and then we, we, we actually did drive out the city. And I, I remember distinctly the uh, rental car uh, agency saying don't stop for anything and of course uh, there was a guy laying in the middle of the road which you don't normally see uh, uh, we didn't know what to do carried on and then uh, I think uh, uh, someone must have thrown some spikes into the the, the road and uh, this jeep then got a flat uh, and within an instant there was like about 20 people around the jeep uh, all holding what looked like uh, knives but I think it was a screwdriver and they helped us out it was so terrifying. Um, but you've just taught my story big time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's it's a really, I found Nairobi to be sort of a really magical city in many ways. And it's very cosmopolitan in many ways as well. But then there's just a sort of other kind of entire dimension um, that, that was scary. And and what was worse is that, you know, they held us in this jail and and the 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 cell itself was... Um, I mean, it was a dirt floor. There was like a hole in the ground to piss in. And then there was a hole um, in sort of like the the concrete wall. And that was the only window. And I remember sitting on the ground and just meditating and um, because no one knew where we were and we didn't know what they were going to decide to do. And they were already holding us, you know, for no legal reason. Well, this is where you came up with your idea then. So talk us through uh, uh, how you got inspiration for seeds in such uh, like an awful setting. (laughs) Um, well, it, it predated this trip, but this was sort of the very, very early days of seeds. Um, essentially, I had been a stock trader, a futures and equities trader in Chicago and then in New York. And I was doing that after college. Um, I'd moved to Chicago because I wanted to study improv and comedy writing at Second City. So if that, if Second City is unfamiliar, it's, it's a comedy school that's, uh, you know, many, many known sort of American comedians have gone through like Bill Murray, Chris Farley, Tina Fey, Amy Poehler. And so I wanted to go there and just kind of come up through the comedy world. So I was doing that and trading was my night job. I would trade the European shift, which was midnight to 9am Chicago time. And one night um, I was sitting on the trading desk and I came across an op-ed in the New York times about micro lending specifically about how microloans, tiny loans made to primarily women in the developing world can be as small as $4, about how they were this fantastic investment and about how they, they really helped these women out who were just completely ignored by the banks due to discrimination baked into the financial system. And I had seen that myself in my own first world way, working as a stock trader, because I was always the only woman or one of the only women at every firm I traded at. 
Um, at one point, I discovered that I was paid a 15% lower base salary than the eight guys who started at the same time I did, despite having a better educational background and uh, experience as a su- successful trader that I think none but one of those guys had had. Um, so, and I negotiated the starting salary as well. So that could have contributed, but there's this really surprising. I, I kind of started waking up. This was, I was 24 or 25 at this time, and I hadn't really thought about um, systemic discrimination before that. And uh, being aware of that, and then knowing, you know, later when we got our trading bonuses, I outperformed the eight guys who had started when I started. Um, it just made me start to get really angry. And I started to think about what I could do to try and shift that system so that it wasn't discriminating against people arbitrarily, you know, just because they're women or, or for whatever other reason. Um, so when I came across that op-ed in the New York Times, it was just like, wow, microloans are this great investment. They're repaid 98% of the time in most regions. And it's women that are statistically much more likely to pay them back. It's women who are the better investment. Um, and so something about that really kind of piqued my interest. And then simultaneously, while at Second City taking classes, uh, the best sketch that I wrote was kind of this abstract feminist sketch called Mime Brothel, uh, about a brothel full of mimes. And the mimes were prostitutes, but when you thought it was going to be a sex act, instead they'd be trapped in a wind tunnel or picking a daisy or something. And it was this really weird idea, but it actually, it sounded strange on paper, but it actually staged really well. Um, and it was well reviewed, but, you know, 20 people would come to see it, maybe. Um, so I started thinking about additionally how I could make things that would reach a larger audience than 20 people on a night, you know? And, uh, and that's really how seeds came together. It was, it was knowing that it was like, okay, here, micro microloans exist. This kind of, touches on my interest as an investor and my interest in shifting the system so that it doesn't discriminate against women. And then, um, yeah, the lightning bolt I had on the trading desk that night when I read that op-ed was, what if I made a film about this topic? Um, That would be a film that I personally at least would be interested in seeing. So maybe there are some other people like me who'd like to see a film about micro-lending as well. Um, And hopefully a film would reach more than 20 people, you know? So I decided to do that. I'd never made so much as a film short successfully before, but I just made the decision. I was able to find a director of photography on Craigslist who'd worked on Fargo in terms of endearment and Groundhog Day. And it had this nice studio Hollywood film career. And I think he could just see that I was excited and I was 25 years old and I was passionate. And he was very generous. He agreed to work for no pay. I just raised the money to cover his travel. And he even let us use his equipment. And once he was involved, it became a legitimate project. So we ended up filming in Paraguay and then in nine cities in India and then in Nairobi and then in Detroit in the States. And the film was ultimately the feature presentation at the Chicago Social Good Film Festival. Um, which was kind of like, it was a new festival, a third tier festival at the time. But yeah, that was, that had been the goal to get it seen. And it was when we were filming in Nairobi, this was the year before I got arrested there. I saw what was going on with mobile money transfer, text message based money transfer. And I'm sure you and, and many of the listeners are already well aware of this. But at the time, this was six years ago, 
it was just so exciting and so staggering to see that going to sub-Saharan African country, they were so far ahead technologically. At that time, 40% of Kenya's GDP was being sent through text message. Just people were doing it all the time. These were people that didn't have bank accounts and, and didn't have landlines. And uh, it was just super cool. And I figured going back to the States that there must be a way to plug some other industry in the developed world into that infrastructure to send more money to those people who were doing so much with it and who were such a great investment. And that's what led to Seeds. Okay, well, this is fascinating, Rachel. Absolutely. So, so at the end of the day, uh, this sort of podcast is all about life. And uh, it's inspiring the apps to try to ha- have a life. And, and I think about your life, you know, how, how far apart can you get from like going to become a trader, working on the trading desk? I mean, that was a dream of mine initially 20 years ago. And, uh, and then having this like, you know, kind of also uh, uh, interest in comedy, which is like, again, the other end of the spectrum, totally. And then going and pursuing like this film directing, it's fascinating, uh, like getting into your life. Now, one of the things that I want to pick up on is the empowerment of women, because I, I actually personally believe that the way to uh, get a lot of these uh, third world countries out of poverty is to empower women. And what, what views do you have then on, on that? And how can micro lending actually empower women to, to get themselves out of poverty? I think that's absolutely true. I think that's the key to societally evolving in so many ways. And I, I think it's I have more kind of meta theories about what that might mean uh, that I'll try and share here. They're still somewhat half-baked, but uh, uh, absolutely, to to answer your question, micro-lending can be a vehicle to help uh, communities just become more self-sufficient and robust because these women take out these loans. um, They're, you know, successful with this capital, you know, 98% of the time or more in most regions. And what they tend to do after they've made money with their micro businesses is they reinvest that capital in better education and nutrition for their families. And so that's a boon for their local communities. And then it can be a boon you know, for their larger communities as well. Um, that said, I've become, this might seem a little esoteric. I've become really interested in this idea of yin and yang, uh, masculine and feminine energy and So not just limiting this way of thinking to the developing world, but also in the States and in Britain and anywhere. Um, I think the reason the discrimination in the system exists in institutionalized finance is because patriarchy is the OS of the bad parts of capitalism. I mean, I'd say it's the OS of everything, um, of the what the Western world has become, what we think of as civilized society, patriarchy is the foundation of that. And I've been thinking about how all humans have both yin and yang, have both masculine and feminine energy. But because we grew up in patriarchal societies, we're taught to overvalue the masculine, which I would define as sort of active and about being productive and um, more zero-sum thinking, more hierarchical. And The feminine, I guess I define as being more receptive for the sake of this example and more more about being. Um, And yeah, because we're sort of out of whack in that way because we're not balanced in ourselves and then therefore in the things that we're creating, I think it's caused all kinds of problems. 
so uh, this is it's kind of complex trying to explain. <laughs> no, I'm following you. I, I am following you. And, you know, actually, uh, I mean, I've been listening to Beyond Mars and Venus, which is the guy that wrote that Mars and Venus. And he's released another book recently. And it's fascinating to kind of dig into the, the you know, the differences. And, and actually, uh, I've learned a lot from from that. But also, I've been in the institutional world of finance as well and uh, you know i'm a big fan of uh, a lot of the alternatives that are coming out and the, the fintech space is just great to, to be involved in in the moment at the moment because of the the whole libertarian movement and uh, you know this kind of uh, move away from large institutions as a, as a source of trust so right. you know that must be like really p- passionate to you know you've obviously you're on to a trend here and uh, do you feel like you're changing the world with this? I hope so. I mean, that's that's the big dream. I we competed. We were fortunate enough to compete in uh, the TechCrunch Disrupt Battlefield competition in 2016 in, in London, actually. And on stage, I I was able to. I tried to make this point that you know, like when I was a stock trader, it was all zero sum thinking. It was literally if I made a dollar, it meant that someone else had lost that dollar, and that's the way that system works. Um, whereas with seeds, so with seeds, you know, we give an app our free tool and they drop it into their code base and it lets their users know that when they make a specific in-app purchase, it's simultaneously going to help someone in need through a microloan. So we found that that makes someone who's never spent any money in an app, 60% more likely to start spending and then they keep spending. So the app developer makes more money, um, seeds benefits as well. The micro borrower gets funds to run their business. And, and then that's repaid and we can keep lending it in perpetuity. So I, I wanted to make this point at Disrupt that what we're doing isn't zero sum. Instead, we're creating this greater pie for everyone involved in the ecosystem. And I think that's the direction we're heading societally. We're getting away from this sort of zero sum thinking, this scarcity mindset and the institutions that we've built that aren't supporting that way of being, I think are going to have to fall away they're going to have to either adapt or it's just not going to work. Um, so I just got to chill saying that, that like that idea is so exciting to me. Um, and uh, I'm really trying to kind of imbue that energy in seeds uh, philosophically and in terms of the culture we're building in terms of our intention. And then also in terms of the practical functionality of the product. Yeah. yeah Rachel, let's talk about that practical thing. Cause that's fascinating. One of the big challenges of uh... Uh, the apps to try listening to this is, is getting those in-app purchases. And, and so what you're saying then is if there is an incentive to either make a micro loan or see some impact uh, from that purchase, then, uh, and if it's an add-on to whatever they're getting, then there's more likelihood that they'll, they'll actually press that button and, and make an in-app purchase. Is that right? They're, that's right. And, and it's, to our knowledge, it's the most effective way to get someone to start making purchases in an app if it's at a micro-purchase pr- price point. Um, yeah, that I should finish the, the story regarding, you know, like after I said I, we finished the film and I came back to the States and I was thinking about, you know, like it just seemed like there was a way to plug something into that micro-lending infrastructure to get these people who are doing so much with this capital, more capital access. And around that time, I'm sure you and many listeners remember uh, this was right after the earthquake in Haiti, which I believe was in January of 2011. And Zynga uh, used Farmville at that time to do this sort of like charity thing in which they sold virtual currency 
and let their users know that when they bought this specific virtual currency, it would go to rebuilding schools in Haiti after the earthquake. And I think they did it as sort of a, you know, like a PR and marketing thing, but I think they did have good intentions and they did it just for a short amount of time. But to their surprise, they found that non, non-payers, people who were playing but had never spent any money, were suddenly also about 60% more likely to start buying. And then they just kept spending after that. So they sort of accidentally stumbled upon what turned out to be the most effective user conversion, payer conversion mechanism. Um, so I wondered if there was a way that we could build a product that achieved that same uplift that would work in all types of games. And then ultimately, the current product can work in any app or on any website that enables purchases. I, I wonder if we could build that and if it would still deliver that same value if we were focusing on microloans rather than on charities. And it turns out it does work. It works incredibly well. And yeah, it's just encouraging to, to realize that it's what happens to be the most effective way to make money in this instance is also a tool that helps other people. Uh, so, Rachel, I still want to understand then, in, uh, because I'm absolutely fascinated by this, In uh, when there's an in-app purchase through Seeds or the platform of Seeds, then it's a micro, we, so you call it a micro loan. Does that mean that the user has the potential to get that money back then after a time? That's a great question. Uh, we don't have it set up that way. That would be more complex. It could be interesting to do later on. Uh, but the <laughs> Another idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would just, yeah, I would add this many layers of complexity. But the way the product works right now is our recommendation algorithm, or we're just in the beginnings of building this, but we show the user an item that they're going to be more likely to want, as well as a type of social good, a type of microloan they're going to be more likely to want to contribute to. Maybe it's a region of the world they're interested in, or, you know, a type of business or something. And it's $2 or it's, it's some micro purchase amounts. And you know, they make that purchase, they make that decision. And then we move the money to microfinance institutions that we're working with who deploy the capital. Um, that's what's true right now. Ultimately, we're going to look at blockchain solutions to move the money. We're actually going to be filing an ICO very shortly as well. I don't know if any listeners are going to do an ICO, but that's also fascinating. Is that, that an initial coin offering? That's right. Yeah, it's, it's really exciting to me because I think it's going to uh, render a lot of the way venture capital works obsolete. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's, t- let's talk through that because I haven't actually um, had anyone talk through an ICO, an initial coin offering, as a way of uh, raising finance f- for you. But w- what does that entail? Uh, yeah. I mean, my understanding my understanding is cursory right now, but we're gonna have to we're gonna be doing this in the next couple of weeks, so we're gonna be learning a lot. But um, <laughs> okay, essentially, you you create a token. Um, that you then make available. You can do a pre-sale and then a crowd sale. The token, uh, as I understand it from a legal standpoint, in the States at least, uh, the token can be a security or it can have utility. Um, If it's a security, then you run into all kinds of uh, other regulatory hurdles. So it's best to make a case for the utility of the token. Um, In our case, there are a variety of different things that the token could be able to do. I mean, we can put portions of the recommendation algorithm that shows a user a specific type of social good on a blockchain. Um, so that's something we have to figure out from a technical standpoint in the next several days. Anyway, but we issue these tokens um, and people can just buy them. And if 
you make a case for the utility of the token that is legally sound, you don't need to raise exclusively from accredited investors. You can raise from anyone and it can have a global reach. So it's, it's a little like crowdfunding in the sense that, you know, anyone can contribute, but they're essentially buying, um, you're not giving up equity, but you're creating this sort of other option for people to take part in the upside of what you're doing. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, there's kind of this. Mm. Yeah. Uh, um, cause I'm Herbert. actually thinking it, it, it reminds me a little bit like, uh, I guess with Kickstarter that you can actually get rewards for, uh, the more that you contribute towards uh, a project. Uh, right. But the utility you talk about, that could be what the, 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 um, uh, could be a discounted initial, um, uh, use of the software or uh, some some reward for being an early contributor? I think that that could be an example of utility. Yep. And uh, yeah, there, there are kind of a lot of interesting technical implications. But in addition to that, so TechCrunch Disrupt was in San Francisco last week and three female founders got on stage and talked about their previous or upcoming ICOs and the idea was just like, so I'm, I'm a female founder, right? I'm a solo, non-technical female founder. Um, I've raised about a million dollars in seed funding, but it's been a slog. And I've had many male founder friends who I knew had less traction or not as strong of a team or less revenue than we have raise money much more easily, sometimes from the same investors who had turned me down. And there are a variety of variables that contribute to that. But uh, yeah, these women anyway got on stage and the question was like, could ICOs level the playing field so that discrimination in VC no longer holds female founders back. So it's just kind of this other element of what I was seeing as a stock trader kind of showing up in this other area of institutionalized finance. And I think ICOs can transcend that. And that's really cool. Um, yeah. Rachel, so. you are changing the world. <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> yeah. I'm following what's interesting to me at least and, and what I think is exciting and what's important. So you so, know, so as we wrap up then, because we've got only a few minutes left, uh, um, this is a show to inspire all those who are listening right now to your story, because uh, I'm blown away by it. But I want to take you back to that time when you were a trader. Imagine you were doing that now, or, or, or alternatively, you've, you've obviously like gone and done all these other things. Has this journey of yours been worth it? And would you recommend this life to others? Absolutely. Um, what I'd recommend, though, specifically, and if I had a time machine, I don't know if I'd go back and tell myself this, but um, I mean, I would say that when I was sitting on the trading desk and had that idea to make the film, which was sort of the first step on this alternate path, um, I really have just listened to myself. I've gotten better and better at just kind of honing in on you know, what my intuition is telling me and really trusting that more so than um, relying on external things and external indicators. And that I think has been the more and more I've done that and the more consistently I've done that, the better life has gotten and the more true life has gotten. And um, I, I practice Vipassana meditation. Uh, so if that's unfamiliar, there, there are these wonderful courses you can do that are completely free and they feed you and they house you and you go and you meditate. The site is dhamma.org if that's interesting to anyone. And uh, just doing that, um, I think of that as sort of a practical application of this feminine energy idea that I talked about. It's just like you're sitting there and you're receiving and 
some of the best problem solving I've done for the business has happened while doing Vipassana. Um, it's just, it's made everything so much better. And so now Vipassana, I, I'm, I'm only, a have uh, been doing meditation for about a year and it's just with the headspace app, but, um, is that where you're doing mindfulness? Is that where, is it a mindfulness sort of meditation where you focus on the breath? It starts out, uh, initially you're focusing on your breath. Ultimately you're sort of, you, you learn to observe the sensation of your breath and then they invite you to use that awareness that you've kind of honed when focusing on your breath to scan your entire body, um, observing any sensation that you feel. And the idea is that you stay, you don't react, you don't avoid or suppress, you just observe. And as you do that, you kind of, you recognize that the nature of all things is that they're impermanent, that they'll, they'll change. And in kind of deeply understanding that, not just intellectually, but sort of really experientially getting that, it just makes it easier to confront anything that seems difficult. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's wonderful. It's, I can't recommend. Well, well, I'm not recommending this to any of the listeners, but I did hear somewhere that uh, some founders were, were really struggling with a lot of different problems. And so they, they had an experiment where they issued uh, um, uh, LSD or some uh, uh, hallucinogenic drug that tapped into your unconsciousness uh, and uh, your, sorry, your subconscious uh, and uh, they, they solved pretty much 80% of the problems they had. <laughs> so, so interesting. Yeah, it is fascinating when you talk about uh, you know tapping into that huge uh, resource and, and the other thing I wanted to mention as well is that you, you're one of the first to talk about intuition in fact on this podcast and uh, I find that so important because it's a uh, you know during uh, the, the whole all the, the years that we've evolved as um, human beings uh, apparently intuition and gut feeling and gut reaction and stuff like that is is vitally important because uh, it's it's evolved it's it, we we should trust it a lot more because it's it's pretty much got us out of life and death you know when we're for our ancestors so uh, just trust your intuition if you're listening to this absolutely yeah the unconscious mind can process large amounts of information that you know, the rational mind, the conscious mind can't necessarily process. So it's... Yeah, and you know, I do have people falling asleep uh, listening to me, uh, probably uh, <laughs> going, in, uh, I'm sorry, I'm, we're feeding into their subconscious right now. Rachel, let's, um, uh, I mean, let's just remind people that uh, if you if you want to get in contact with Rachel, I will put uh, show notes up. It's episode 537. So go to the co, and uh, you'll be able to get some links there to Rachel. But how is the best way of getting in touch? What, what, what's the best way of connecting with you? Sure. Um, you could tweet at us. We're at Seeds Tweets, S-E-E-D-S-T-W-E-E-T-S. Um, also, the website is playseeds.com, P-L-A-Y-S-E-E-D-S.com, if you want to visit us there, um, either spot. Wonderful. Rachel, thank you so much for coming on the show. And thank uh, what you, a Paul. fascinating uh, journey to, to go through. Uh, all the best for the, the future of Seeds. Thank you so much. <laughs>